All right, Matthew 27. We've only got two more weeks of actual new Matthew material. It feels a little bit surreal to me. I don't know if it does to you. It's just one of those that's like, for some of you, we've been in Matthew the whole time you've been at our church. For some of you, we've been in Matthew the whole time you've been a pastor at our church. And now we're coming to the end. Last week we kind of got to the most important moment in all of the history of everything with Jesus' crucifixion. And we kind of left it. He was dead. But, but as he died, he kind of, the earth kind of declared his victory over sin. And today we're going to kind of continue in that vein. Uh, seeing, seeing the victory that he has, has established over sin, over death over all of these broken relationships between us and God, and he's, making, he's, he's completed all the work possible to make himself known. He's completed all the work possible to make, to make himself known to us, to repair the relationship that we've had with him. And so, so we're going to get to the victory part, but there's a little bit of narrative that we're going to kind of go through, and there's some, there's some unique stuff that Matthew points out in his gospel that none of the other gospel writers mention, and I want us to focus, it'd be really easy for me to just turn this into like a really simple Easter sermon and come up here and just be like, all right, so hey, Jesus, I was joking about it earlier, like Jesus is alive, mic drop, all right, let's sing, here we go, and that'd be, that'd be, our, whole, that'd be our whole sermon, but there's, there's some interesting things that are happening in here because, and I think Matthew, obviously he's speaking to a specific audience, and it's a specific uh, reason that he puts a few of these narrative pieces in here, and I want us to get a hold of those because I think there's some interesting dynamics that are still at play, still at work in the text that I think are worth us noticing as the church today because it's stuff that we're still continuing to face today. So even as Jesus is going to declare his victory over death, declare his victory over sin, there's still a few things that are at work. There's still a few. It doesn't mean that it's not like this was the end of the Bible. It wasn't. And he's alive, and that's it. That's the end. There was a whole lot more that comes after that. There's a whole lot more to still to come. And I think we kind of see some of this set up really clearly in Matthew, and I think it's going to be helpful for us. So if you are uh, in your Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew 27. Uh, we're going to finish up chapter 27 and get all the way into chapter 28 today. Uh, so we're going to pick up. Matthew 27, I'm going to start in verse 57. This was just after Jesus has died. It says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and lay it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So let's just stop right there and kind of get some context as to what's happened. Um, Jewish law said if you left somebody hanging on a cross overnight, they were cursed. If somebody was hanging on a cross on the Sabbath, which would have been the next day, they were cursed. This was not a thing that would be good. So, so it was important that out of respect for, out of honor for Jesus, that they get him buried that they, that they take him through all of the process that he needed to be to be buried in a tomb, cut out of a rock, which is basically just a big hole in the side of a hill with a bed that they would lay somebody on, and then they would roll a stone in front or whatever like they did here. 
And so there's a couple things that are at play here. First of all, it says that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, meaning he was a follower of Jesus. But one of the other things that we know about him was that he was also a member of the Sanhedrin, which is that that kind of inner circle of religious elite people that we've been following all along. Uh, We don't get the story of Nicodemus in, in Matthew's telling of the gospel, but Nicodemus is another priest uh, in this same group who followed Jesus. And, and, and I think, uh, like Nicodemus, it was when, when we saw Nicodemus come to Jesus, he came to him at night because it was kind of not cool to be one of the religious elite and start following Jesus. And now, and now we have this guy who's in a very similar situation, who's, who's part of this group that just killed Jesus, that, that, are, that are obviously in opposition to who Jesus is and what it is that he's trying to accomplish. And now this is basically his declaration publicly, hey, I'm, I'm with this guy, right? He comes out and he says to Pilate, I want to bury Jesus out of honor for him. Basically saying, I'm one of his followers and I have the means to make sure that he is taken care of now that he's dead. And so I want us to realize that, that this is costly for Joseph in two ways. One, it's not cheap, I would imagine, at this time without lots of excavators and stuff that they have available to dig a big hole in the side of a rock. Not everybody got that level of, of honor as they were being buried. And so Joseph is sacrificing a really expensive thing. He's, 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 he's using a lot of his resources, and then that is costly to him in a really tangible, like physical sense. But also, socially speaking, this is very costly for Joseph as well. Because he's basically saying to all of these people who have just killed Jesus because they were so offended by him, because they so wanted him removed, he's saying, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and honor this guy because I've been following him, and I'm going to continue to follow him. And I think that's worth noting because, because it's, not always, it's not always popular to come out and say, you know what, I'm with Jesus. I'm in on this thing. I am, I am bought in. I am completely sold out. I've, like we just said, I'm completely surrendered to anything that he would have me do. But that's the call that we've been given. You know, come follow me, sell everything, right? Sell everything, take up your cross, follow me. All of these are like really drastic measures, the kinds of things that disciples have been called to. And now you have this guy who has the ability to, to honor Jesus, make sure he's taken down from the cross, make sure he's not left there forgotten. But it's not just going to cost him a lot of money. It's going to cost him his, his circle of friends, maybe his whole community, the whole the whole group of people that he had been with, this is not going to be an easy thing for him. And we see that he doesn't, he doesn't balk. He goes, he goes right to Pilate and he says, hey, I want to bury Jesus. And he's granted that by him. Also note, and we're going to come back to this thought right there in the end in verse 61, that it says that there were two Marys that were there sitting opposite the tomb. It's probably they were there helping as well. It's not like they were just kind of innocent bystanders, just like, oh, yep, that's happening. I think they were probably involved, too. We're going to see them continuing to be involved. But the significance is that they're even being mentioned here, and I'll come back to why that is here in just a few minutes. Let's go ahead and keep reading in verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir... We remember how that imposter said while he was alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, 
You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it secure as you can. And so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So a couple of things that are happening here. And, and, and again, this section we're also going to kind of come back to in just a few minutes. This kind of sets up. This is kind of, I think there's a big payoff that comes in later on. Uh, but this is, we kind of get this, this same, we kind of get this set up and then the answer here in just a few minutes. Matthew's is the only gospel to tell this part of the story. Matthew is the only one to emphasize that, that the chief priests and the Pharisees went to the government saying, we want to make sure that there's no, there's no funny business here taking place with Jesus. He's also the only one to tell the story of the interaction between the guards and the Pharisees in just a few verses after. And, and, and I think that that's important because, because Matthew's setting this up because he's going to kind of pay it off later and talk about how they're kind of two opposing Gospels that are going to take effect here. There are two, two kind of opposing versions of the story that are going to start to be at play and how that's going to... And, and, he, and he's mentioning it, I think, because to his Jewish audience... They're going to have heard both sides of this story. They're going to have heard, oh, Jesus didn't really ra- wasn't really raised from the dead. Here's, here's what really happened. And we'll kind of get into that in just a sec. But, but I think the, the important thing for us as the church to go ahead and start thinking about now is how we've been given this message of who Jesus is and what it is that he's accomplished. But, but we aren't the only ones taking a message somewhere. We are, we are constantly at war with another gospel, another, hey, this is the truth that you actually need to know. And this is a thing that we are constantly going to be battling against. I think it's kind of ironic that the Pharisees remembered that Jesus said he would rise again when all of his disciples didn't. Right? Because where are they right now? They're not there. When Jesus got taken, they all ran and hid. The next time we see the disciples not even in Matthew, but in some of the other gospel tellings, they're like huddled up inside a little house, hiding, wondering when the government's going to come grab them and kill them as well, because they were with Jesus. The last time we saw Peter, he was denying that he even knew Jesus, and then running away crying, because he realized what he had done. Right? These are the guys who had been with him all along, and they've forgotten the most important thing that he said. And we've mentioned this throughout Matthew, because every time Jesus would, would predict his death, he would predict his resurrection alongside it. The Pharisees had even been there, I think it was in chapter 12, when, when Jesus had made this prediction, I will, I'm going to die, but three days later I'm going to rise again. So the Pharisees had heard this, the disciples had had this kind of beaten into them over and over and over again, and yet every time they would say, he would say, I'm going to die and rise again, they'd say, you're not going to die, we're going to protect you. We don't want that to happen. That's not the version, that's not the version of our King, our Messiah that we're looking for. We don't want you to die. So I think it's hilarious that, that these guys who've been in complete opposition to him all along remember better than the people who had been kind of following him, trying to learn from him for three years. And these guys remember, he said he was going to come back. And, well, we don't think he'll actually do that, but, but we could see his disciples trying to do something to try to, to try to drum up a little bit of excitement among the people. So we've got to try to protect them from this. And so they go to Pilate, and when he says, you have... A guard, like there had been Roman soldiers assigned to protect the temple already. Like the, there was already kind of a security force that the Pharisees had to kind of protect the temple grounds, that sort of thing. He's saying, you already have guards. Go do with them what you want, right? Go make it as secure as you want. Because, because Pilate kind of had his reputation at stake here too, right? He's the guy who said, I don't think he did anything, but we'll go ahead and kill him just so we don't have to worry about it, right? 
Like, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't absolve Pilate of, of guilt. In fact, we said very specifically, he's just as guilty as anybody else because, because the reason Jesus died is because we're all sinners and we all were in, in opposition to God. But, but I, think, I think there's a lot of their reputation at stake. The Pharisees and Pilate, we kind of see these two parties kind of getting together and work together again as a means of kind of protecting their own reputation, kind of protecting themselves from maybe a little bit of a PR nightmare. I say that, I say that because... I'm around people who are worried about PR nightmares all the time. I'm in an off, I work in the university relations, and, and that's a, like, there's, there's always kind of this game planning. What could go wrong? We have to make sure that we're ready to make sure that if this happens, we have it all figured out. So they're trying to make sure that there's no funny business that can take place, making sure they're protecting themselves, um, really being concerned with their own self-preservation over whether, or, instead of whether or not Jesus actually was the Messiah, Right? Because they could have said, oh, maybe he will rise again, and maybe he, that means he is the Messiah, and we should follow him. No, they're like, we want to make sure he doesn't come back to life. And so, and so at this point, where, where, where are we? So Jesus has died. His, his followers have gone off into hiding. He's been buried in a tomb. The tomb is being guarded by, by Roman soldiers, the, the best of the best. Nobody's going to fight their way through them. And this is just kind of at like the, the darkest moment for Jesus' disciples. And I was trying to think through like, because, because the transition is so quick in the way that Matthew tells this story. And I was trying to think through what's the best way to kind of think through kind of where they were. Like this is kind of the, the darkest moment. And then I remembered this quote from Harvey Dent from The Dark Knight. And he said, the night is darkest just before the dawn. I promise you, the dawn is coming. Oh, I love that. It's a good quote. Because that's kind of where they were, right? Like, like all of this, oh, we've lost, right? They're feeling like all hope has been lost. In the very next verse, we're going we're gonna to see the two Marys coming back just to kind of make sure that Jesus is being cared for. They're still thinking, oh man, we've lost. How sad. This is, all of his followers have forgotten what it was. They forgot that the hope was coming. And then we get to chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb, and with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. 
Okay. So this is, this is the exciting part. Like, Jesus is dead. They're thinking all is lost. They walk up. There's another earthquake. We keep seeing these earthquakes. Like, like the earth is shaking in response to all of the things that Jesus has done. He dies. The earth shakes. The dead come back to life. The curtain in the temple was torn. Jesus raises from the dead. There's an earthquake because, because, and I think it's interesting when you look at like all the conjunctions that are in there, it says there was an earthquake for an angel of the Lord had come down. Meaning like the, the impact of just the appearance of this angel was impressive. Like he didn't just kind of sneak up and say, hey guys, how's it going? I'm going to roll away the stone over here. It wasn't, it wasn't subtle. The angel comes down and the, 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 the baddest of the bad, the elite guards of the Roman army, it says become like dead men, which basically means they just fainted. I don't know if anybody's ever been so freaked out they fainted. I don't think I have, but Andy laughs. He's like, you probably have. Oh. But think of like the most intense thing that, that startled you more than anything else. That like, that like feeling of shock that you kind of get through your whole body. I'm trying to think of a good example from something that, that absolutely terrifies me. It seems like any time I walk into Ellie's room and she's playing, and I just say, hey, Ellie, it's immediately ah, at the top of her lungs because she's like so focused and locked down on what it is that she's doing. Like I'm afraid she's going to just pass out right there. Like it, it's that kind of feeling, except apparently to the degree that a whole, a whole group of trained, like lethal soldiers pass out like goats. You can picture that, right? You can picture that. And so we get this narrative of, of, of the two Marys kind of coming up to, to care for the body of Jesus, probably to, to bring some extra anointing oils and spices and these sorts of things that you would put in, inside the tomb um, to show honor to the person who had died, but also just to kind of keep the body in, 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 in a good sort of preserved state. And so they're coming up, there's been this earthquake, and there's this angel who's described as lightning, and we've seen in all of these instances where major, major events have happened regarding Jesus, that these angels come to kind of announce the way. When, when Mary was going to have Jesus, there was an angel who came and said, hey, you're going to have a baby. And then when, when Jesus was born, he come to the shepherds out in the field, Boom, angel, hey, Jesus is here. You guys need to go check this out. Jesus has had these angels coming, kind of announcing these kind of moments of victory in his life all throughout his story. And so, once again, they come up and they see this angel, and he is impressive, right? He's terrifying. His appearance is like lightning. I don't even know what that looks like, but it sounds awesome, right? And, and, and they're terrified. But their reactions, note, note what their reaction is. They're like a little bit scared, but they listen to him. And he says, go, tell the disciples. Jesus wants them to know. So quick, go see where he was, but then quickly go tell them. And while they're going, they come up and they find Jesus. And their reaction to Jesus is very different than their reaction to the angel. And I want us to notice this. Yeah, the angels, the angels terrifying looking. Lightning, bright light, earthquake rolling away stones, all of this. But when they see Jesus, it says they were so filled with joy that they grabbed a hold of his feet, basically meaning they fell down on their face before him, and they worshipped him. Their joy moved them to worship. It wasn't just that they were excited. 
It wasn't just that they were happy to see him. It wasn't just like, oh man, I forgot that you said this was going to happen. This is really cool. It wasn't like that. They were so overjoyed at what Jesus had done and who he was and the fact that he was there with them now, standing in victory over death, that they were moved to worship. And I think we've got to ask that question. Do we feel the same sense of joy over the idea of the risen Jesus? We as the church, we as people who, who claim to believe that this happened, believe that this actually happened, that Jesus died and was raised again, are we filled with that same kind of sense of joy? Do we get filled with that, that much of, a, oh, I so, I so passionately love you and want to tell you everything about that, that we're just driven down to our knees before him in worship? What does that even look like? Right? We're thinking they fell down on their knees. They grabbed his feet. Have you ever been moved to worship in that way? Have you ever been so overjoyed at the idea that Jesus was risen? I just want to go back and make one note. Think about what the angel said of Jesus. He said, you're here looking for Jesus who was crucified. Another way that they could that you can kind of translate that would be to call him Jesus, the crucified one, as though it is a title. Some of your versions may have that. Jesus did not stop being the crucified one. He was crucified and he continued to be crucified. And Matthew wants to make sure that we don't negate all of what he just accomplished with his death. Like the resurrection is a big deal. <clears throat> He absolutely has shown his victory over death, his victory over sin, all of these things. But the crucifixion absolutely happened, and he stands in victory after that, but that doesn't mean that it's negated all that he had already accomplished. And so Jesus, the crucified one, accepts their worship. Later on, when we get into like, if you, if, you keep, if you were to keep reading on, you get into Acts, there are a couple of times that the disciples will perform some miracles and people come up and they'll bow down before them. And they'll be like, no, 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 not me. We're not the ones that you're supposed to be worshiping. You worship Jesus. He's the one who's doing all of this. He's the one who's accomplished everything. But we don't see that with Jesus here. We see that they come up, they worship him, and he accepts it because that is who he is. He is Jesus. He is, he is God. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of that level of adoration. And then he speaks to them. And he gives them the same message. I can imagine it's probably because they were probably a little bit dumbfounded. I know I, probably would, I would probably lose track of what it was I was doing right before I saw the guy who was dead standing there before me alive. And so he reminds them, hey, here's what I want you to do. Go find my brother's. And tell them to come meet me in Galilee. And this is, the, this is the one thing that he says that's slightly different from the angel. The, the angel said, go and tell the disciples. But Jesus, when he tells them to go find them, he says, please, go and find my brothers. Right? We've talked about this before. When, when Jesus, what Jesus accomplished on the cross was not just that he made it possible for us to find salvation and to have our sin taken away. He made it possible for us to be made sons and daughters of God 
possible for us to be grafted into the family of God. And now he's, he's calling his disciples, his brothers, kind of declaring the, the completion of that. These are my brothers. This is my family. We're in this. I want to be with my family. The cross makes Jesus' followers his family. Family is such a, a huge deal. And, and when you think about all of our own lives, all of our families look very different. My family looks very different than my wife's family. Looks very different than any of your families probably. We all have different kind of family makeups, different situations, different relationships that work or sometimes that don't work in our families. Some of us don't have relationship with anybody in our family. Some of us have relationship with maybe one or two people. Some of us maybe have even been adopted into a different family that wasn't our actual birth family. But the cool thing is what Jesus accomplished on the cross and what he's declaring in his victory over death is that he's made possible for us to have, have a new family. We're no longer identified only as we're the Clemens family or the Bennett family. We're the family of God. We're the children of God. We're the sons and daughters of God. Heirs to the same promises that God has made to, to all these generations of followers all before because we are now a part of that same family. Just in that one use of that word, go tell my brothers that I want to see them. Jesus is saying so much. Jesus is saying, we don't have to feel like we're defined by the way our family is oriented, our, our, the way our life is. Our identity is not wrapped up in my relationship with this person in my family. My relationship, my identity is wrapped up in my relationship with Jesus and the family that he's giving to me. That's just so cool to see. Go ahead and read this last section real quick, and then I'll kind of tie all these pieces together. Verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave them a sufficient sum of money. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So you have kind of the opposition party, kind of a la Penguins of Madagascar saying, you didn't see anything. I like the penguins. They're trying to say, we got to cover this up. we got to make sure that this isn't a thing. Or if anything, we've got to get, get kind of an alternate narrative out there so that not too many people go off chasing after this guy. And it's interesting. We could, we could kind of dive really deeply into the motivations of the Pharisees. But suffice it to say, they thought they were doing the right thing. They've already said that they think that Jesus' whole ministry is being empowered by Satan. They think that he's working for the enemy. They think that he's a bad guy, so they think they're trying to protect the people. But all that they're doing is actually fighting against the will of God. They're fighting against the things that God wants to see accomplished. And so they're getting out this kind of alternate narrative. 
this kind of alternate gospel. And I think, I think Matthew puts these two stories kind of paired side by side because, because we just saw Jesus give kind of the first hints of the Great Commission to the two Marys who were standing right there worshiping him. He gave them the first call. Hey, go tell some people that I'm alive. Right? He's basically handing, handing the keys to the kingdom of heaven, this message of a risen Savior, this message of, a, of, a, of an accomplishment, um, a, a, a victorious Messiah to these two women at the same time that the Pharisees, the opposition, the religious elite, are giving an alternate narrative, an alternate gospel to these guys saying, go get this story out there so that we can try to fight against what's going to happen. But, but we know. We know that this story is going to work to a degree. Matthew even says so. He says in verse 15, this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And I think he, he, he leaves this part of the story, and again, he's the only one that tells this, because he's writing to a Jewish audience trying to remind them, this guy who came, and I think, I mean, we think he probably wrote it like some, what, 30-something years after all this happened, maybe. It's probably, it could have been closer. I don't really know. But he's trying to say, this guy that came, he really was the Messiah. This is the point that he's trying to make in his telling of this gospel. He's trying to say, you've heard this story. I know you've heard this story. We still hear this story going around today. Let me tell you why it's there. It's because these people were in opposition to who Jesus is. They were trying to fight against him. They didn't want the true message of who he was and what it was that he'd accomplished to get out. And I think it's interesting to see these two gospels from right here at this moment, even from the moment that Jesus is risen and accomplished everything that he said he was going to accomplish, there was immediately a voice of opposition. And I think it's worth noting because when we're like, why don't people get it the way we get it? Well, because we have two different kinds of people here. We have people who are saved and people who are not. And for those of us who are going to save, we're going to fight as hard as we can to get this true message of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished out into the world. And we're going to talk a whole lot more about that next week. But we can't deny the fact that there are those who don't understand who Jesus is and what it was that he was trying to accomplish that don't fully understand why we care so much about what this guy did. And that's why it's so important for us as the church to kind of revel in, understand the big picture here of what's going on, appreciate the idea of a risen literally risen Jesus and be excited about that and be, and be moved to worship because of that. One last thing, just kind of talking about family. Look at who Jesus first gives the gospel to. We could get into, I could get into all the arguments as to why we think that this is all absolutely true and why we think that this is written in such a way. But there's, there's a big section in a lot of commentaries, if you go read a bunch of commentaries on this, about how big a deal it was that Jesus first revealing himself came to a couple of women. Because culturally speaking, if you were going to try to build a legitimate case about anything, you wouldn't start with 
I'm going to go tell these two women, and they're going to be the two witnesses that I'm actually alive. Socially speaking, they wouldn't have gotten a voice in a court. They wouldn't have gotten to testify. But yet, Jesus is appearing to them and saying, I want to show you myself first. I want to reveal myself to you first. Reminding us that that they have just an equal standing as every, every man who's also going to be following Jesus, who's also going to be taking the gospel. We're all in this. We're all valuable. We're all important. We all have an important part to play in taking the gospel. In fact, it was the guys who wussed out and went and hid in a room somewhere, and they're the ones who have to come kind of drag them out of hiding and say, no, really, Jesus is alive. Come on. Because when Jesus defeats sin, when he starts repairing broken relationships, it's not just that he's, he's repairing our broken relationship between us and God. He's repairing all of these broken relationships that we've made between one another as well. All of these times that we've tried to say, we are greater than these, this group of people, or, or, or we are more important and you don't count as much. And we've tried to add all of these different layers to society and say, I'm more important, I'm more valuable, you need to just kind of stay over here and do your thing, or whatever. He's saying, no, he's going to, socially speaking, a lower class of person. I'm not saying that for me. I'm saying that for society that he was in. And he's saying, you guys get it first. You guys get to tell this first. You're going to go tell the rest of the guys because you matter just as much. You are just as important a piece. So when we're talking about how Jesus is making us family, when we're talking about his knitting us together in this family, he's knitting us together in a family whose relationships have been restored because there's no longer this barrier of sin. There's no longer this sense of pride that we can develop and say, I'm greater than, I'm more important than this person, or I am more valuable than this person. This person means less to God. He's saying, no, no, to my, to those who, who are following me, who have surrendered themselves to me, who are confessing that they believe in me, that I have accomplished all of this for them. I'm making them one family. I'm making them one group of people who are going to fight for me, who are going to go for me, who are going to take this gospel for me, which we will talk about next week. So, come ready. Come ready to get, hopefully, hopefully we will all get just inspired by this idea of the victory of Jesus that it will continue to propel us to go and love people. Because that's all we're talking about next week. Next week is the Great Commission. Matthew ends his gospel really quickly, really abruptly, but he ends it on a really important thing, that we're supposed to be the ones who now go and tell people about all of these things that Jesus has done. So, so this week, I want us to practice being joyful about what it is that Jesus has done. Practice being excited about what he's accomplished Let our joy move us to worship. Tim said, is it okay that I picked a happy song for right after the sermon? Yes, because Jesus is alive, and we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done, and we're going to worship him and be filled with joy because of all that he's done. So let's pray, and then let's sing. God, thank you for what it is that you accomplished in raising your son from the dead. Thank you for the victory that he has provided for us. Thank you for the possibility that we can be saved, the possibility that we can have a family. God, I don't know what all of our family situations look like, but I know what it's like to be around sinners, and it's sometimes hard. I don't know what all of our relationships are like. I don't know what it's like 
to be with this group of people or, or whether or not we even have a group of people around us. But I know, God, that you have said that you are making us a family. We are, made, we are adopted as sons and daughters into your family. And so, God, I just pray that, that maybe if there are those of us in here who don't, who don't know family, who don't know that kind of close-knit community, that kind of unity that we can have in Christ, that you would, you would just put that desire into their heart this morning, that they would so want that kind of family that they would say, I'm willing to surrender everything, let go of everything, and, and, and be joined to this family and find my identity in this family that you have created because of your victory over sin, your victory over broken relationships, your victory over death. And God, that we would just be so moved to joy because, because you have defeated death. You have defeated sin. You have accomplished all of this. And God, I just pray that you would fill us with this overwhelming sense of joy, that we would sing passionately, that we'd be so overwhelmed by the goodness of what it is that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing.